You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 56, Video Games. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Today we're going to talk about video games and their effects on people's minds. Let's start with a topic popular in the media. I hear lots of people may get upset about the violence that they see in video games. So Jim, are video games really that violent? So it's important to realize that video games are extremely diverse. And yes, some depict incredibly violent content, but uh, I'd say that they're really variable and even more variable than movies. More than movies, really? Well, you know, just about all movies are stories about characters, right? Like there are people in there. Some are horrific, some are funny. But when you compare like a gritty game, where you're, like a video game where you're killing demons all the time to something like Words with Friends or Tetris and Dance Dance Revolution. <laughs> true, true, true. <laughs> you know, they're, they're yeah. really, really different. Like, it, like Dance Dance Revolution, there really aren't even characters or anything. You know, it's just a bunch of symbols, you know. Um, there's, so there's a lot of variety. In some games like Candy Crush or Tetris, they, you know, no story, anything like that. Um, Dance Dance Revolution is a game where you jump around and hit pads with your feet at the right time, you know. So like there's nothing, there's no movie that's anything like that, you know. So there's just a lot of diversity in it. And yet Mortal Kombat involves ripping out people's character spines. <laughs> yeah, that's a really violent one. And there are some games like the Grand Theft Auto series uh, that allow you to just walk around this virtual city and beat up, like, innocent civilians. Now, on that note, I know, you know, when shocking violence happens in our world, people tend to blame video games because you can see they're sort of, oh, you know, playing out, I can attack or kill a random civilian. So maybe they're somehow letting that out on other people in the real world? Like, what What does the science actually say? Yeah, so th- this this is fueled also by people who commit these crimes talking about that they, that they play video games, violent video games. So um, there is a correlation between violence and aggression in real life and playing video games where it's part of the game to act violently and aggressively. But this is a really great example of something we always need to be mindful of in our field, and that's the difference between correlated things, correlation and causation. Sure. Like, it makes sense that if somebody has a violent tendency for whatever reason, they may be attracted to violent video games, let's say, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, like, football players play a lot of football video games, right? But, you know, we don't talk about, oh, are the, is the football video game causing them to play football? Right? <laughs> um, so, and soldiers play a lot of war video games, you know? So, people if, people, if you like to do something in real life, there's a good chance you like to do it in a video game. I mean, it's just because it's got some of the similar things that you like. So it would make perfect sense that violent people would want to play violent video games, right? More than like, a, and like somebody who really hates violence in the real world might also hate it in video games, you know? But the science about the causation between these things is very controversial. So there are some studies that find a causal connection, and there are other studies that don't find any at all. So, you know, in preparation for this, podcast episode. Uh, I reviewed the literature a bit, and that included several meta-analyses. So everybody, a meta-analysis is where you don't just study people directly. You you take in a whole bunch of studies, and you and you look at the, the patterns across a lot of studies and see what the conclusion is. And, um, and even the, the meta-analyses come to different conclusions, right? Uh, anyway, so what I've come up with is that either violent video games do not cause aggression and violence in the real world, or 
They do, but the effect sizes are very, very small. And this is not too surprising because I, I think that if an effect is big, you're not going to, it's going to be harder to come up with a null result, right? So yeah, I think the effects are pretty small. Just to explain a little bit uh, to our listeners about what this actually means, when a study is significant, it means there is very likely some effect or some difference. The effect size is how big that effect is. So for example, if you won five cents, that significantly makes you richer, but the effect size is very small. <laughs> right, that's a good example. Five cents richer. So we use significant in everyday language to mean a big deal, but in science, it doesn't mean that. It just means we're pretty sure it's true whether or not it's a big deal. So yeah, violent video games cause aggression or violence. It's very likely a small effect, probably not even enough to worry about. Uh, and some even argue that when violent people play video games, it's cathartic. So it sort of like gets the violence out of their system and it makes them do less violence in real life. And that's actually quite a long-standing debate in psychology, right? Yes, it is. And, you know, like uh, an example that gets brought up is like the um, uh, Japan has a lot of violent pornography, but like one of the lowest sexual violence rates on earth, right? So it's a very, there's just, it's just, it's just hard. It's complicated, right? I also should, I also should say that most of the studies done in this field are, are not very well done. There are lots of methodological issues and this isn't my opinion this is other like people in that field criticizing other scientists and their studies um you know meaning like a methodological issue means that the studies weren't conducted properly um and you know this can often lead to something called experimenter expectancy effects hmm is that when the experimenter expects to find influences how they make the experiment so it's more likely to get what they expect Yes, yes. They, um, they, they just sort of sometimes subconsciously set up the experiment to get what they want, um, what they expect to get. They also, a lot of these studies also rely on self-report of the gamers, right? So you basically like ask them, how aggressive do you feel? How violent do you feel? And, you know, the, people aren't stupid. You know, this often makes the participants know, like figure out what the hypotheses are. Mm -hmm. And that could, you know, potentially affect their responses. Hmm. That's kind of like... Um when you give drugs, you have to be double blind, right, in a study. So you have to control that expectancy, right, to some extent? Yeah, you don't want self-report if you can avoid it. Right. So there would, should be a, a way to more objectively measure violence and aggression by either watching them or having them do some other task. Yeah, yeah, that's the best way to do it. But that's, of course, more expensive, right? You can't just do a survey or something. So you have to have a panel of independent raters. Um, another issue in this field is publication bias. That's when people don't publish null results, right? So if an experimenter finds no effect of video games, either good or bad, they're less likely to get a paper accepted and even less likely to write it up and submit it. Kim, you're giving everybody a lesson in the philosophy of science in this episode. Mm -hmm. you know that? <laughs> Just basic experimental design, my friend. Everybody needs to learn. Mm -hmm. That's true. I, I did learn all this stuff in a psychology class uh, on experimental design. Um, so another problem that plagues the field and trying to study this is that it's hard to isolate violence in video games as a variable. How's that? Well, violent video games also tend to be fast-paced, difficult, and competitive. So if a study compares playing a violent video game to some control condition, maybe a non-violent game or doing some non-gaming activity like reading a book, you have to ask, you know, when if they do find results... Is it the violence of the video game that is causing the difference you found, or could it be competitiveness? 
Or could it be the fact that it's fast-paced, right? So a car racing game, for example, is fast and competitive, but generally not violent, right? So ideally, your control condition would be a perfectly identical game without the violence, right? But that's, as you can imagine, that's very hard to do. It's like, let's have a version of Pulp Fiction with no violence in it. Like, how would it actually be Pulp Fiction with no violence in it? You know what I mean? Um, But these control condition games do not exist in the wild, so what that would mean is that if you, unless, you know, if you can't use real games, you'd have to program the games yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm going to guess a video game made by an experimental psychologist probably isn't very fun. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah, Just saying. <laughs> we're not, yeah, we're not trained in video game design. We're not going to be able to compete with the best video games. You know, um, I, uh, I remember uh, I had a, a friend in, in grad school who was testing memory and he read uh, sports casting, like a uh, play-by-play of a base- baseball game. And he read it himself and he got like these terrible like floor effects, which means people didn't remember anything. And then he, tr- and then he had an actual sports caster read it and then he suddenly got ceiling effects. <laughs> really? <laughs> Cause, wow. Yeah, because he was so bad at reading it. It ah. wasn't exciting and people hated it. So in both cases, he got no results because either everyone was at the, remembered nothing or everything depending on who read it, right? So if you like design a crappy, stupid video game made by a psychologist, you know, are you really, is there ecological validity? Which is like, you know, are you actually, is this actually an effect of a video game because it's so different, you know? You know, like, and, and you and I developed a video game, right? And how much time have you, how much time have you spent playing that game? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jim and I designed a game, by the way, to learn, uh, to help people learn how action potentials work, and it's called the Postsynaptic Simulator, and it's available in the iOS App Store. Yes, it is. Yep. So the audience might actually try that game. This audience might, <laughs> if you want to know about action potentials, which I know you do. So, Kit... Kim, do you play video games? No, never. Jim, I have no time for hobbies. How about you? (laughs) Do you play games? (laughs) I I play a a little bit, yes. I used to play more, but now I I really feel like I'm wasting my time when I play them, so it's very hard for me to do. I I basically play just one game, which is called Hearthstone, and that's kind of a video game version of Magic the Gathering, which is like a competitive card game. You know what's funny is I get all excited about video games, and sometimes I buy them, but then I never end up playing them. They just sit on my shelf. So I buy these like cheap PlayStation 3 games and basically never put them in the console and try them. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> that's funny. I always thought that you would be like doing a lot of gaming. No, yeah. I, I, well, part of the problem is that I, there's not much I like to do for more than 20 minutes at a time. And so... By the time I, like, turn on the TV and get the console started and load up the game and blah, 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 I'm, like, ready to do something else. Hmm. So, <laughs> what, so what makes you—what draws you into be, to playing the games you actually do try? What's All right, that's there? a good question. So yeah. uh, I would say lately that it's just—it's fun. Um, but I also find it intellectually challenging. And I, I hate to say this on the air, but I, I often play this video game, Hearthstone, when I read— <laughs> Gasps. <laughs> Gasps dramatically. What? Aren't you the ultimate enemy of multitasking, Jim? I am. I kind of am. I am. Well, okay, so just, uh, this sounds like I'm making excuses here, but Hearthstone is a turn-based game uh, where you, you get, they hook you up with some random person on the internet to play against, right? And during the other person's turn, you can't do anything. So, uh, and it sometimes takes like a minute for them to do their turn. So if I have to read something that's really boring... And sometimes I do. Um, I just read during the other player's turn. And then 
uh, when it's my turn, I just like put my put the paper down and make do my turn, then go back to it. And the combination of playing and reading makes the whole thing much more bearable. <laughs> you know what? I, I lied. I, I, I have played video games. You know what I've played is um, escape room games. Do you know what I mean by those? Oh, ver- uh, video escape room games? Yeah. Like this one game yeah. called The Room. I, I like games like that where you're solving puzzles that kind of like lead you to like, I don't know, like actual escape rooms, right? You solve these puzzles that allow you to then achieve another puzzle and so on and so forth. I really, really like playing those games. I just can't find very many of them. So if our listeners have some good suggestions, please send them my way. But I've done all of the room games. I think there's like four of them that you can do. And I, I did them with my mm-hmm. oldest daughter who, who really loved um, doing them with me and sort of that puzzle cracking problem solving but yeah and that Mm -hmm. uh, brings up an interesting point right that not everybody is playing for the same reasons right so i i i do that for sort of the challenge and solving the puzzles and you're doing it to i don't know what's your main motivation me it's fun i i mean it's fun yeah it's fun it's it's a challenge right like so this card game involves some kind of strategy both in like how you make your deck of cards, but then in the game you have to strategically play them. So it's not, it's so like you might, a strategy game is where you have to like think about what you're going to do and in what order, where like a tactical game like Tetris or a shooting game is more like, you know, mm, accuracy. You just have to skill. do things. You have to, yeah. have to act really quickly and you have to solve a very concrete problem, but there's not a lot of planning involved, you know? So, but yeah, people play for lots of reasons. Sometimes they'll play to have a break from their daily hassles, you know, kind of an escape. Sometimes there's some, you know, personal gratification by playing it, um, coping, and uh, some people like the competition. And some people do it for socialization, especially young people. Hmm, socialization. Tell me more. Yeah, the popular view of video games, especially, you know, people Generation X and older, is that video games are a solitary activity, bringing to mind, like, a nerd alone in his basement, you know, but... but Many of the most popular video games today involve heavy social interaction. Many people now, particularly young people, they play games. That's the way they hang out with their friends. Like they all go to someone's house and play together? Well, often they're communicating with headsets over the internet. So they're all in their own homes, right? They might be collaborating on a team in a game or socializing and shooting the breeze while they do it. It's kind of like a group phone chat over a shared activity. You know, like... It's it's true that reading a book is a much more antisocial activity than playing modern video games in many cases. Sure. So what you're saying is it's a bunch of nerds in a basement, right? Oh, that's mean. That is yeah, <laughs> no no promoting stereotypes on this podcast. It's a safe space. It's a safe space. Yes. Plus, plus I'm a nerd. So and I so am I. Right. That's that's beyond. You are not a nerd. I am. I'm a neuroscience nerd. To me, a nerd is somebody who is really fascinated with a particular topic. Me, okay, right. Kim, Dr. Kim Hellemans keeps designer shoes in her office and looks like a fashion model walking around campus. Uh, can't right? you be both, right? Neuroscience slash fashion nerd? Huh? Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, back on topic. Okay. She's <laughs> it's, not a nerd. It's final sounds, say. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like some people are using video games to escape their problems in real life. And you mentioned that this is one of their motivations, right? Um, yeah, I think that... You know, this is like one of the red flags for drug use, right? That people are using drugs to escape their real world misery. Exactly. That's what made me flag this. Yeah. I, and I think there's something to that. But, you know, I would like to say that entertainment of all kinds can offer like a temporary respite from your problems, you know. Um, but people tend to bring our attention only to those things we want to criticize. Like, for example, people might read Charles Dickens 
or go to the opera to escape into a different world for a time. But we don't criticize these people for pathologically avoiding their problems. Well, I mean, is does pa- problematic opera consumption actually exist, right? I, I, jo- <laughs> I, I joke here, but I think it's important to unpack that nuance. And for sure, there's a good evidence that people who report drug use, their primary motivation for using substances is around coping. So coping with stress or anxiety or depression, that tends to be associated with more problematic use. But I think that there's, we, we need to be aware of the different types of coping, right? And that all, how they impact the brain is quite different. So if you're coping by using alcohol, that's going to have a very different impact on your brain chemistry than if you're coping by listening to Bach's uh, sonata in B minor. I totally made that up. Does that even exist? No, probably not. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like it, like if I'm like having a bad day and I sit and I put on my, you know, headphones and listen to a beautiful piece of music, that's impacting my brain chemistry very different than if I'm having a bad day and I consume a bottle of alcohol. Right. So it's important to to unpack that. So coping alone, yes, it can be associated with more problematic things, but we need to be mindful of what the coping is. Coping with yoga, exercise, very different, right? Yeah, that's true. Anyway. You know, and and we I guess it's a question of whether we want to say video games are more like drugs or more like the opera. Maybe it's both, right? Right, it could be different for different people too, right? It could be that there's good and bad coping. Exactly. So maybe should we talk about some of these positive effects of video games, right? Yeah, let's talk about positive effects yes. of video games. Yes, it could be short segment. Oh, ouch. No, I'm kidding. Um, so I do think there are video games that, can, well, some of the effects can be quite positive, right? And there are some that are, in fact, specifically designed to improve your intelligence, right? Yes, yes. So there's several games like this. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm hearkening back to our uh, idea of the hypothetical video game made by a psychologist. But like one of them, one of them is called Lumosity. Uh, and this game purports to improve things like your working memory and your attention, your perception, Yes. I remember they were uh, hard marketing this to the Mm -hmm. boomers, right? The aging population that was supposed to sort of stave off Alzheimer's. So the question is, does it work? You're right. Well, so here's the interesting thing. Yes, they do, but only a little bit and mainly for things that don't matter, in my opinion. Okay. Like what? What doesn't matter? Well, so if you want to be smarter or you want to like hold on to your, your, you know, mental clarity as you get older, a slight increase in your reaction time isn't really what you need, right? Like games increase lower level, quick responses kinds of smarts a bit and not much. But if you want to be effective in the world, if you want to be like competent with your mind in the world, I, I really think like reading a reading a nonfiction book is a better use of your time. Or listening to a great science podcast. Yeah, I mean, if you can find one, you know, it's pretty rare. <laughs> <laughs> what about other video games, like ones that are actually fun? Yes, actually fun, right. So Lumosity is really not that much fun. And so I feel really bad for like people nagging their aging parents to like play these boring video games because the games uh, are designed to make you smarter don't work any better than commercial games that are simply designed to be fun and engage you. So what I mean by that is you get the same benefits from playing like a violent shooter like Call of Duty as you do from playing Lumosity, which was designed to make you smarter. Hmm. Wow. So, if you know, if you want to improve your response time and whatnot, at least have some fun doing it, you know, and do something interesting. Yeah, like we talked, some games have higher level kinds of problem solving in them, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, some video games 
have very challenging problem solving in them. You know, many of them depicting complex three-dimensional worlds that look a lot like our own. But interestingly, unlike our own world, the problems that you have to face in a video game always have solutions. They always have solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. like people don't make impossible games, right? So it, think for a minute about what playing these games does for you. You're faced with problems that are very challenging. Some of these are physically challenging, like you have to do a certain kind of jumping and running in just the right way. And some of them are really intellectually challenging. You, you know, you have to figure out what to do. And, and if you persist long enough, you'll solve it. And it sounds like perhaps people would get rewarded for their persistence in those kinds of games. Yeah, that's right, right? So I, I, I think the same might be true with tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, that it very likely engenders a can-do attitude, like let's try something else and, you know, like approach the world, an approach to the world that might increase the grit and persistence in trying to solve problems. Is there any evidence out there for that? Do you know? I don't know of any direct evidence for this, but there's an interesting study that looked at nightmare frequency and found that gamers had fewer nightmares. What? That sounds opposite to what you'd predict, <laughs> right? If they're, especially if they're seeing like really violent and gory things. Well, this is a little hat tip to our dream episode, but one of the main theories out there for why we dream at all is to that we use it to rehearse dangerous situations, right? So this hypothesis is that since gamers do so much threat rehearsal during the day when they're playing these games, that they needed to do less of it at night, and the findings actually supported that. That's wild. Yeah. I know for me that my nightmares changed after I started taking martial arts classes when I was a kid. So I'd have these dreams of being chased. But after I learned some martial arts um, and got practiced at that, I actually started behaving differently in my dreams. I started, like, fighting back in my dreams. Interesting. That's wild. Yeah. And and so the world of video games is often more enjoyable than real life. Um, It's engineered to be satisfying in a way that the real world isn't, right? Goals are achievable. You get rewards for doing things. You know, they're, they're, they're given in incremental steps. You know, big, big video game companies like Microsoft, like they have a huge video game section. They use their big user testing facilities and infrastructure, like the same ones they use for Microsoft Office, to make their games kind of in the sweet spot between hmm. difficulty and ease, right? Hmm. Just like the, the, right, just the right amount of challenge. And they hone their games so that the challenges are interestingly difficult. But, you know, they allow you to get past the difficulties before you get too frustrated and stop playing. So, you know, they op- they're optimizing playtime and compare this to the real world. You know, you try things sometimes for years and you can like utterly fail, like no retries. Um, and you know, one idea out there is that games are so fulfilling uh, in a way the real world is not. And that's part of their popularity. Hmm. Sounds like games could put you in some kind of flow state. Yes, that's, that's what they're trying to do when they design the game. Right, a flow, Now, a flow state is when you get completely absorbed in a task and you forget about everything else. Um, this was sort of invented and explored by a famous psychologist named uh, uh, Csikszentmihalyi. Is that how it's pronounced? Csikszentmihalyi, yeah. What's his nationality? He's passed away now, but I think he was Czech. Yeah, I could never pronounce his last name. I've seen it many, many times, but Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah, Csikszentmihalyi. That's... that's Wow, you, that's how you say it. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that makes sense to me. If we think about all the tedious, boring things you have to do in reality, like waiting in line to get your health card renewed and so on and oh, so forth, yeah. it's like, like, yeah. Much of the world isn't designed to be engaging, like waiting in line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. And much of the world, nature, isn't designed at all, right? So it's no wonder, It's to me, it's no wonder people spend so much time in these engineered realities that are optimally challenging, like missions are clear and doable, 
you know, unlike the real world. Mm-hmm. And how does this compare to other media? Oh, like movies and books and stuff? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of overlap, but the big difference is that games are interactive in a way that other art forms are not, right? So, you know, movies and stuff and books also, also present a different world, but it's not a world where you actually do anything, right? It, it, so you don't get that satisfaction of achievement so much. Some people say, uh, they still say video games can't be art. I, to me, that's a very hard position to defend, you know, for looking at the difference between like movies and video games. If you look at the credits of a major video game and a feature film, for instance, there's this huge overlap in job titles. You know, video games have costume designers, lighting designers, script writers, concept artists, soundtrack composers, animators, effects artists. It goes on and on. And one reason I play video games is for the scenic beauty. Or some of some of these games offer incredible visions of other worlds that are just gorgeous. You know, so you know if a video if video games can't be art, like well, okay, so nothing about the video game is art. Like not even the set design or the music. Right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I I think it is art. It's a different form of art. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're certainly enjoying those aspects of games in the same way that we appreciate a Pixar movie psychologically. But so what is different? Like, what's so special about the interaction? Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the ability to, you know, get um, reward for something that you've done uh, after persistence is one thing. But I think there's another thing. One emotion I don't think you can get from a movie, but you can from a video game is guilt. Guilt. Tell me more. What do you mean? Yeah, I think, you know, I think movies can make you maybe feel guilty about something your social group did, like, you know, uh, our ancestors or whatever, but not about what you individually did. But some games, and not many, have you do things that make you you feel guilty about it, right? About what you've done, you know? And in its experience, I think it's very hard to generate in a movie. Like, I killed somebody and I feel bad about it, too. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, something like that. And people would actually play games that make them feel guilty? Because I personally don't like feeling guilty. It's kind of an emotion I try to avoid. Uh, yeah, sometimes yes. So I, um, I I remember reading about a game where um, all, all you have to do is you're this old woman and you have to walk. You play this old woman and you have to walk to and sit on a bench. And, um, you, and if you try to just like go as fast as you can, she'll get too tired and the game will be over. So over time, you have to learn that you have to pace yourself and be gentle with the character on the screen to get her to the bench. And so there's like this, and as you learn to be gentle with the character, you might feel guilty about all the times you oh, you wore her out the first time. And it, and there's there's guilt there, but there's kind of a lesson to it. And the whole thing is kind of poignant, you know? So Wow. That's, <laughs> so a, people, ga- that's a game? <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's an or indie game. It's not like a, a game. blockbuster mm. game. Mm. No, it, no, no, that's like the whole game. It's the like kind game. Of this indie experimental game, but it is, huh. they, there are all kinds of like little tiny games, just like they're like short student films, right, being made. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, sometimes, sometimes people mm. do play games to, that make them feel guilty. Now, let's go back. We talk about games in terms of being fun, but are they really... Are they really fun? You know, like, you just can't believe games could be really fun, can you, Kim? No, 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 it's not that. <laughs> like, do you think people play games more because, like, I'm obviously looking at this through the lens of my research area, which is addiction. Like, are they doing it because they're, are they having fun? Is it a compulsion? At what point does it, be, you know? Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think this this gets to the difference between liking and wanting aspects of your reward system that your uh, your colleague Barrage, um, I think, pioneered or did a lot of research on. Kent Barrage. Um, Kent Barrage, yeah. Ter- I love Terry his work. Robinson. Anyway. Yeah, me too. 
So I can feel, and I bet other gamers listening can too, that sometimes games are really fun and pleasurable, but other times you just keep playing because you can't stop, right? So there's like a a bunch of games that are might be called clearing games, like Candy Crush or Bejeweled, where you're just trying to clear squares off the board like as fast as you can, and they're kind of never-ending and your desire for like order on the screen is never fully satisfied. So you end up just, you just keep swiping and, and like trying to clear and, and, and long after you've stopped having fun, right? So my, my advice would be that if a game feels addictive, uh, then you should, you should ask yourself if you're actually enjoying it. Are you using addictive here in a clinical sense? No, I'm just using it in the casual everyday sense of the word. Like when we say a TV show is addictive, right? right. It's not like, you know, it's not our true addiction. So we'll save real behavioral addictions for a future episode. Um, but another another thing I want to bring up is a nuance about why people play video games is in terms of how it how a video game can create memories for somebody. How so? So I've played some amazing games um, like the God of War and Portal Two or Half Life Two, and not only did I thoroughly enjoy playing these games, but I have very fond memories of playing them. Like, I think back to the things I saw and did, and it's it's almost like reminiscing on a great trip I took. <laughs> hmm. So, it's in contrast to playing games like Tetris, which are repetitive, right? Yeah, 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 and, and compulsive a bit, right? So, you can you can play Tetris for hundreds of hours and even have fun while you did it if it's not, you, you know, it doesn't have to be totally compulsive, but but to you, the, the memories of the bl- games all blur together. It's not like you can remember that one game you played two years ago. You know what I mean? Like, you haven't created memories to enjoy later. Interesting. So, let's wrap this up. Can you summarize? Is playing video games good for you or bad for you? Jim? So, I think they can be good for you, and they're better for you if they're social, if you play them for fun and not for competition or out of a feeling of compulsion. Uh, If you play games with, uh, with real problem solving in a virtual world, it's better. Um, and they can even improve low-level cognition, like reaction time and maybe pattern recognition. But if you want to improve your brain, there are much better ways to do that than playing video games by reading challenging books and learning new skills and playing sports. And ultimately, the big benefit of games is fun and recuperation. So make sure if you are spending time playing a game, you're actually enjoying it and not just playing it for the wrong reasons. Because if you're not enjoying it, it's even more of a waste of time than it already is. Jeez. Oh, do you think we could gamify our podcast? yeah every episode you listen to you get a million points and an extra life Minding the Brain is edited by Mike Contos and is brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University if you want to support Minding the Brain please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice if you'd like to follow us on Instagram you can find us at Minding the Brain. Minding the Brain is currently looking for sponsors. If your company is interested, please email us at mindingthebrainpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for Minding the Brain is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.